Welcome to One Chapel. We're a family of neighborhood churches in the Austin area. Our vision is to help people move from where they are to where God wants them to be. It's a place to connect, grow, and serve the communities where we live. You can learn more about One Chapel and how to get involved at onechapel.com. And now, here's this week's message. Well, good morning, everybody. So you all are the ones who moved your clock forward, right, and got up a little bit earlier than normal. Um, Please, if anybody comes in late, just be gracious and let them come on in. Everybody else will come to the second service. Uh, Boy, is it good to be back here in Texas. was in Wisconsin for the last two weeks doing a wedding and freezing my tail off. It is amazing how the Texas blood gets in you very quick. Uh, so it is so good to be back here in the hill country. I absolutely love it here. All right, this morning we're starting a new series that we are calling What Went Wrong. So if you have your Bibles, go to the book of John, or you can also follow along on the screens. John chapter 8, starting in verse 31, it says, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, You are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. So, if the Son sets you free, you are truly free. Now, I want you to notice here that one of the promises that Jesus gives to us is that we will experience freedom here in this lifetime, here in this world, here on earth. And so that means that we don't have to wait until we get to heaven to receive this incredible benefit of Freedom, but how many of you know it's one thing for Jesus to have provided this freedom for us, it's a whole other thing to actually walk in this freedom. How many of you know that to be the truth? And I think one of the major reasons for this, why so many struggle for so many to struggle that we struggle to walk in this freedom is simply just because of life. Life has a way of doing things that creates this gap between our expectations and our experiences. And there's probably one word that you could put all of this under, and that is the word disappointments. Webster's defines disappointment as sadness or displeasure caused by the non-fulfillment of one's hopes or expectations. Now, here's the thing about disappointments. Because these disappointments, whether they're big or small, they are coming our what way? We may not know when or how that they are coming, but they are coming into our life kind of like an unexpected guest that just shows up at your door. Disappointments have a way of just barging in through the doors of our life. In other words, life isn't turning out the way that we thought it should. And so disappointments are these things that occur in every one of our lives, whether you've used that word or not. And I think So many of us, there's this feeling that we're left with of then what went wrong? (laughs) What went wrong? What's happening? Why aren't things turning out the way that I thought they should? And so throughout this series, I'm going to try to wrap a little vocabulary around those feelings that are affecting us more than I think we realize and more than I think a lot of us are verbalizing because disappointment is that feeling that things should be better than they are. People should be better than they are. Circumstances should be better than they are. Our finances should be better than they are. Our relationships should be better than they are. Life should be better than what I am currently experiencing. 
This is what we're going to talk about throughout this series. This morning, I want to introduce to you a guy, probably a lot of you are familiar in, in the Scripture, um, one of the major people in the Old Testament, David. Because David, I think, provides us a great example of somebody who had a bunch of disappointments, and then ultimately, how these disappointments can ultimately affect our lives in very unexpected ways. So look at how we're introduced to David in the Scripture. First Samuel chapter 16 is where we first kind of start seeing um, David's life. It says this in verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, This is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shemaiah, but Samuel said, Neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Then Samuel said, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. So watch what's happening here. Because of all the men in Israel, God chose David to be the next king of Israel. But it would take nearly 15 more years until David actually stepped into that role of being the king of Israel. Talk about a delay of a dream. I think for most of us, we get disillusioned and hopeless and frustrated and even angry when our dreams don't materialize within a month. We kind of give up. We, 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 just, we, we get disillusioned. And so here, David, he has to wait 15 years for that calling, for that dream to actually come into fruition. So talk about disappointment. And for the first of those seven years, David actually had to spend that time in King Saul's palace. Look at this in 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them, for Jonathan loved David. From that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. Now try to put yourself in David's shoes here because you've been told that King Saul has lost the favor of God, that God's hand has come off of Saul and God is displeased with him and he no longer will be the king of Israel. And so in a private ceremony, as just a teenager, you are anointed by the prophet of Israel to become the next king. But now, through a twist of circumstances, you found you find yourself in the palace of the very one you're supposed to replace, and he won't let you go home. I think we call that abduction, right? You're all alone. You're, you can't get out of there. You are stuck. And I mean, can you even imagine being in that circumstances? And it gets worse, because very soon David's going to find out just how narcissistic and abusive and hostile King Saul really is. Look at this, First Samuel chapter 18, verse 5. Whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. So Saul made him a commander over the men of war, an appointment that was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers alike. When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, 
Women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. This was their their song. Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. This made Saul very angry. What's this? He said. They credit David with ten thousands and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul, and he began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing the harp, and as he did as he did each day, but Saul had a spear in his hand, and he suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. But David escaped him twice. Can you, can you even imagine living in such an environment? You know, the sad reality is that some of you actually can Because some of you have had to live with horrible physical abuse, sexual abuse, verbal abuse, mental abuse, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse. For David, this was his environment for seven years. This was what he had to deal with for seven years while being forced to live in King Saul's palace. And it finally gets so bad that he actually has to literally start running for his life. Look, this is in 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 9. But one day, when Saul was sitting at home with spear in hand, the tormenting spirit from the Lord suddenly came upon him again. As David played his harp, Saul hurled his spear at David. But David dodged out of the way, and leaving the spear stuck in the wall, he fled and escaped into the night. Then Saul sent troops to watch David's house. They were told to kill David when he had came out, out the next morning. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, If you don't escape tonight, you will be dead by morning. So she helped him climb out through a window, and he fled and escaped. Then she took an idol and put it in his bed, covered it with blankets, and put a cushion of goat's hair at its head. When the troops came to arrest David, she told them he was sick and couldn't get out of the bed. But Saul sent the troops back to get David. He ordered, Bring me, him to me in his bed. So I can kill him. And so David starts running. And for the next four years, David runs through the entire nation of Israel. He runs for his life, hiding from King Saul and his army. For four years, he has no place to rest his weary head. And every night when he falls asleep with this overwhelming thought that this might be it. That tonight, he, the army might catch up with him, and this might be his last night of breath. Can you imagine the fear, living with that fear? Can you imagine the confusion that you have as you're, as you're running for your life? And finally, after four years of running, they finally look and they find a place where they can think it might be a place of refuge. Out far enough away, out of the stretch of Saul and and his army. And so they finally make a place. This, this is going to be their home. They're going to set up camp here in this, in this city of Ziklag. And this is going to be where they're going to find refuge. But no sooner had they began to settle down than this happened. Look at this in First Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. Three days later, when David and his men arrived home at their town in Ziklag, they found that the Amalekites had made a raid into the Negev in Ziklag. They had crushed Ziklag and burned it to the ground. They'd carried all off all the women and children and everyone else, but without killing anyone. When David and his men saw the ruins and realized what had happened to their families, they wept until they could weep no more. David's two wives, Ahinoam from Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal from Carmel, were among those captured. David was now in great danger 
because all his men were very bitter about losing their sons and daughters, and they began to talk of stoning him. Now, we're going to come back to the end of the story in just a little bit, but I want to make sure you're seeing what's happening in David's life and seeing these disappointments that are mounting and accumulating in his life. You have the confusion of being anointed the next king of Israel, but oh yeah, wait, 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 not yet, not for 15 more years is this actually going to happen. You have this whole thing where he's being forced to stay in the king of Israel's, King Saul's palace under this madman's rule, and you're just a teenager and you can't go home. This is the environment now that you're living in for seven years. This monster who wants you dead, who verbally and physically abuses you, which then leads you to, for the next four years, you're running for your life. Always looking behind you, wondering if this is going to be your last day, your last night, that, this is going to, that you're going to be alive. And then finally, finally, you finally find a place Where you think this is going to be my place of safety, my place of refuge. I'm going to finally feel safe only to return and find out that another army, the Amalekites, have come and abducted your women and your children, have taken all of your possessions and have burned your city to the ground. And now your men, the very ones who have been with you the last four years, your friends, those who've been loyal to you, who've been with you through the thick and thin, running all over the nation of Israel, now they're turning their back on you. I mean, can you even imagine all that was accumulating in David's heart? Eventually, though, David starts having good things in his life. And isn't that the way life kind of happens to us? It's not like No matter how hard and difficult our lives are, it's not like every second, every minute of our days are filled with horrible things. We do all experience good things. And David was the same. King Saul eventually dies and David can start, stop running. He's finally officially inaugurated and recognized as the next king of Israel. David brings the Ark of the Covenant back into the city of Jerusalem, an incredible victory, an incredible celebration for the Jewish people. The nation of Israel expands greater than any other season before that. David becomes the most loved and most honored king ever in Israel's history. And so a lot of great things are happening in David's life. But you know what? The nature of hurt and rejection and abuse, and disappointment, when they happen in our lives, you can cover them up with a whole bunch of good stuff, but eventually they're going to start seeping out of our lives. I think this is the essence of what was going on with David and what eventually caught up with him, because even though there's a lot of great things that were happening in his life, look at what he fell into. Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year... When kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon after his midday rest, David got out of his bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she, who she was, and he, told, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent a messenger to get her, and when she came to the palace, 
he slept with her. Now, if you know the rest of the story, it gets worse. Because not only did he have sex with her, she gets pregnant. But then he tries to cover it all up and hide it from everybody else, concocting this great scheme to try to cover it up. It doesn't work. And so he puts a hit on Bathsheba's husband, and mysteriously, he's then killed in a battle. This is what was going on with David. So think about this, because this is the same guy. So this guy who becomes an adulterer, this guy who has this affair, this guy who concocts this incredible scheme, this guy who puts, who ultimately is a murderer, this is the same guy who had an uncommonly close relationship with God from the time of his youth. This is the same guy who God had chosen above all other men in the nation of Israel to become the next king of Israel because of the purity in his heart. This is the same guy who had this uncanny trust and faith in God to the point that he was able to defeat Goliath, the Philistine champion of war and giant, with just five stones and a sling. This is the same guy who had a godly understanding of authority and refused to kill King Saul, even though he had opportunity and opportunity and was fully justified to do so. This is the same guy who danced with a complete abandonment in his whitey tidies when the Ark of the Covenant came into Jerusalem. This is the same guy. But yet when this pleasurable situation came to his attention, David jumped right in. Why? Why? When you think about it, sex makes you feel good for a moment. So does alcohol, so do drugs, so does food, so does shopping, come on, for a moment. But when there's something inside of you that's not quite right, what do we do? We reach out, trying to find something, anything, to try to make us feel good, even if it only lasts for a moment. I think this is what was going on with David. David had experienced so much trauma in his life. And it was just lying there below the surface. And it ended up taking him places he never would have thought he would go. Can I be honest with you here this morning? 2019 for me was one of the... uh, Gosh. One of the hardest years I've ever been through. And it's funny because if we had time uh, for me to share it with you all that went on in 2019, you'd probably look at me and think, well, what's the big deal, Russ? I mean, really. I mean, if I could share with you all that happened, probably some of you would think, well, that's, that's, that's not such a big deal. Maybe on the surface, um, I might agree with you. But I think that's the problem. Because I think what we do so often is that we compare ourselves with others. And so we think, well, what I'm going through, what I'm going through, that's not as bad as what Amber has, Amber has gone through. Well, what I'm going through is not nearly as bad as what Don is going through. What I'm going through is not nearly as bad as what Craig has gone through. And I think we just compare ourselves with other people. And as a result, we don't want to actually recognize what actually is going on inside of our own heart. Because... Listen, 
Come on, Russ. There's a lot of worse things that are going on in this world. There's a lot of people who experience horrific things in this world. So what's the big deal for you? I've been pastoring for 29 years, and you know how much of what I experienced in 2019, to be honest, it wasn't, it wasn't new, <laughs> but it was the culmination of really one thing after another that was beginning to take a toll on me, just really kind of layers of disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. As a result, it was taking me in a bad place, and I could tell, I could tell it wasn't myself. I could tell it wasn't that, that I wasn't right, my emotions weren't right, my, my thoughts weren't right. Phys- physically, I could tell um, because I, I had an injury about 20 years ago and my back was causing me all sorts of pain again and, and everything I normally would do just wasn't taking care of the pain. I was just getting so close to the edge and nothing that I was doing was working. And so I could tell, I, mean, I could tell. And here's, and here's the thing, I know better. <laughs> Good grief, I, I know better. <laughs> and so I could tell I wasn't in a good place. But you know what? I didn't have any understanding of why or what was really going on on the inside of me. But sadness and kind of this disillusionment and hopelessness was entering in my thought process. And, and to be honest, eventually it began to just seep out of me. It began to seep out. And I was making decisions and, and viewing reality. And ultimately, it began to spill out on the people around me. And unfortunately, Everything that I was dealing with began to, that, that dark place that I was getting into began to seep into my wife, Courtney, as well. But I was, I was just really struggling being able to grab a hold of my own emotions in this. Those of you who are going through um, the book, How We Love, uh, my, my style is an avoider. And, uh, and so it's easy for me to avoid what's really going on on the inside of me. And it wasn't until Courtney said, finally said one day, I haven't felt this way in four Two years. Since the day I had to take the noose off my mother's neck. It wasn't until she said those words that it kind of shook me out of this. Oh my goodness, how do we get here? How do we get to this dark emotional place? And she was able to pin it much faster than. I was able to, but the reality is that both of us had just gotten into this emotionally bad place that the trauma of 2019 was pinging all these things from both of our past lives. And, and uh, you know, here, one of the things that we talk a lot about in church is, especially when it comes to inner healing and dealing with disappointment and hurt and things that people do and say to us, one of the most important ingredients is forgiveness and and it is absolutely essential to getting your heart free. And I'm a huge proponent of it. You hear me talk about that a lot. Forgiveness is huge, and it's absolutely essential to getting yourself free. But there's something more to living free than just walking through forgiveness. Because when you've been hurt, when you've been abused, when you've been rejected, when you've been misused, when you've been violated, when people have said and done things um, that have caused enormous pain in your life. When life isn't turning out the way you thought, when it sends you a curb, a curveball, a loved one dies unexpectedly. Your child gets a, 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 a death-leaning sickness in their body. You're, you're diagnosed with a disease. Your spouse files for divorce. You lose your job. You 
lose out on one promotion after another, when disappointments are accumulating in your life and there's this increasing gap between your expectations and your experience. When that happens, there's this deep trauma that occurs in your soul. And left untouched, that trauma can stay dormant for months or years or even for decades, but eventually, everybody, it will begin to seep out. It may seep out into your marriage and how you begin to treat your spouse and respond to your spouse. It may seep out in how you're treating your kids. It may seep out in your friendships. It may seep out in your work relationships. It may seep out in, in all sorts of addictive behavior. I think, think about it this way. Because have you ever gotten a splinter in your finger before? And then it gets infected? It's an amazing thing of how much pain a little itty-bitty splinter can cause your physical body. And if you had a splinter that was in your finger and it got infected, and I accidentally bumped your finger, you would have a disproportional reaction to that. You would literally feel like you're going to jump out of your skin because of the pain of just that inadvertent um, bump that happened. I just think this happens in our soul. We get splinters in our soul, and they get infected. Have you ever had somebody tell you you're overreacting? You're blowing this out of proportion? Why are you getting so upset about this? Anybody anybody ever say that to you? Come on, let's be honest. Well, chances are they were right. (laughs) Chances are they were right. Because when you have past wounds that get infected in your soul and someone bumps up against them, you're going to have a disproportional reaction to it. These are like infected splinters that go deep inside of our soul. When Courtney and I were in the middle of this last year, we went and saw a Christian counselor because we were just getting stuck in our dark emotions. It was taking us places I honestly didn't think I I could go to. And and one of the things that Courtney kept saying was, I don't like how I'm feeling. I just want to feel normal. What do I need to do to feel better? And honestly, I think this is how all of us tend to respond to hurt and wounds and trauma in our life. We just want to feel better, don't we? I, I just want to find myself. Again, we lose ourselves in, in this process. And so what do I need to do to feel better? It was interesting because our counselor's response to this was not what we really expected because he said, that's actually not a very good question. That's actually a question that's going to keep you stuck in whatever it is that you're going through. The better healing questions are, what does God think about me? And what I'm going through, what does God think about me? And what I'm encountering, what does God think about me? What does God think about this traumatic situation that's affecting me? And where was God? in the middle of that traumatic experience. See, one of the ways that God brings healing to our lives is for us to become aware of the presence of Jesus in that situation. Because listen, everybody, Jesus is always with you. Whether you realize it, whether you know it, whether you experience and see him, he is always there. And so finding him in the middle of your pain, finding him in the middle of that trauma is key to your healing. When David was confronted with the reality how far his trauma had taken him, look at how he he responds to Psalms 51, verse 1. God, give me mercy from from your fountain of forgiveness. I know your abundant love is enough to wash away my guilt. Because your compassion is so great, take away the shameful guilt of sin. Forgive the full extent of my rebellious ways and erase this deep stain on my conscience. For I am so ashamed, I feel so much pain and anguish within me. 
I can't get away from the, from the sting of my sin against you, Lord. Everything I did, I did right in front of you, for you saw it. Against you and you above all have I sinned. Everything you say to me is infallibly true and your judgment conquers me. Lord, I have been a sinner from birth. From the moment my mother conceived me, I know that you delight to set your truth deep in my spirit. So come into the hidden places of my heart and teach me wisdom. Purify my conscience. Make this leper clean again. Wash me in your love until I am pure in heart. Satisfy me with your sweetness and my song of joy will return. The places within me you have crushed will rejoice in your healing touch. Hide my sins from your face. Erase all my guilt by your saving grace. Create a new clean heart within me. Fill me with the pure thoughts and holy desires ready to please you. May you never reject me. May you never take from me your sacred spirit. Let my passion for life be restored, tasting joy in every breakthrough you bring to me. Hold me close to you with a willing spirit that obeys whatever you say. Then I can show other guilty ones how loving and merciful you are. They will find their way back home to you knowing that you will forgive them. Oh God, my saving God, deliver me fully from every sin, even the sin that brought blood guilt. Then my heart will once again be thrilled to sing the passionate songs of joy and deliverance. Lord God, unlock my heart, unlock my lips, and I will overcome with my joyous praise. For the source of your pleasure is not my performance or the sacrifices I might offer to you. The fountain of your pleasure is found in the sacrifice of my shattered heart before you. You will not despise my tenderness as I humbly bow down at your feet. Because your favors, you favor Zion. Do what is good for her. Be the protecting wall around Jerusalem. And when we are fully restored, you will rejoice and take delight in every offering of our lives and we, as we bring our sacrifices of righteousness before you in love. Notice that word, that phrase. And when we are fully restored. And when we are fully restored. David actually talks about this the reality of soul healing and probably the most famous psalm of all, of all, Psalms 23. It's up here on the screen. Would you just say this with me, Psalms 23, these first three verses, say out loud. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. And listen to this, what? He restores my soul. Say it again. He restores my soul. Do it again. Say it again. He restores my soul. Listen, everybody, God wants to restore your soul. As a matter of fact, he's intent on it. He's intent on restoring your soul. One of the things that I do, which I think most of you know, leading into each year, is I take time to kind of study the Hebrew meaning of that, that year because in Hebrew... Um, every number has meaning. And so this year is 2020. And so that number 20 in Hebrew has this picture of open hands. It's a great picture. Because what most of us do is we live life like this, don't we? We hold on tightly to our dreams. We hold on tightly to our relationships, to people, to what we want. We, we, we live most of our life like this. 20 has this image of this opening up. And it means expectancy, redemption, to restore all. 
And so as I've been praying and thinking about this year 2020 and what God might want to do in our lives, that word redemption has just been the word that's just been ruminating in my heart. Webster's defines redemption as the act of restoring the honor, worth, or reputation of fulfillment. Think about that for your own life. Think about what God might want to do in your life here this year of restoring the honor, worth, or reputation of fulfillment. Let's go back to 1 Samuel 30, because I think the ending of the story is really a profound picture of what I believe God is wanting to do in our lives this year. Look at this in 1 Samuel chapter 30, starting in verse 3. It says, When David and his men saw the ruins and realized what had happened to their families, they wept until they could weep no more. Some of you know exactly what that's like. And what you've been going through and what you've gone through, I mean, you've cried until there really are no more tears. You've gone through a, a season of weeping here. David's two wives, I know them from Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal from Carmel, were among those captured. David was now in great danger because all his men were very bitter about losing their sons and daughters, and they began to talk of stoning him. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Then he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought it, and David said to the Lord, Shall I chase after the band of raiders? Will I catch them? And the Lord told him, yes, go after them. You will surely recover everything that was taken from you. So David and his 600 men set out, and they came to the brook of Besor. But 200 of the men were too exhausted to cross the brook. Let me just make a side comment here, because I think this can happen to every single one of us. We can get so exhausted in the past fight that it feels like you just can't go any further. And listen, everybody, this is why it's so important to be surrounded by a community of believers around you, to be part of a life-giving church, to be a part of people who actually believe what God says, who have faith inside of them. Because there's going to be seasons in your life that you feel like you just can't go in a step further. There are going to be seasons in your life where you feel like, I can't pray. And somebody needs to pray for you. Somebody needs to become your voice when you can't pray. And listen, it's going to happen to every single one of us. Jesus said in this life, you're going to have difficulty. (laughs) Woo! (laughs) You know? But that's the reality. Come on, everybody, you know that. There's going to be disappointments that happen in this life. And there's going to be times where you just come to the end of this. Verse 10, but 200 of the men were too exhausted to cross the brook. So David continued the pursuit with 400 men. Along the way, they found an Egyptian man in a field and brought him to David. They gave him some bread to eat and water to drink. They also gave him part of a fig cake and two clusters of raisins. For he hadn't had anything to eat or drink for three days and nights. Before long, his strength returned. To whom do you belong and where do you come from? David asked him. I'm an Egyptian, the slave of the Amalekite. He replied, my master abandoned me three days ago because I was sick. We were on our way back from raiding the Carthites in the Negev in the territory of Judah in the land of Caleb, and we had just burned Ziklag. Will you lead me to this band of raiders, David asked. The young man replied, if you take an oath in God's name that you will not kill me or give me back to my master, then I will, I will guide you to them. So he led David to them, and they found the Amalekites spread across the fields, eating and drinking and dancing with joy because of the vast amount of plunder they had taken from the Philistines in the land of Judah. David and his men rushed in among them and slaughtered them throughout the night and the entire next day until evening. None of the Amalekites escaped except 400 young men who fled on camels. 
David got back everything the Amalekites had taken. And he rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, small or great, son or daughter, nor anything else that had been taken. David brought, back, brought everything back. He also recovered all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock. The plunder belongs to David, they said. Then David returned to the brook of Besor and met up with the 200 men who had been left behind because they were too exhausted to go with him. They went out to meet David and his men, and David greeted them joyfully. But some of the evil, evil troublemakers among David's men said, they didn't go with us, so they can't have any of the plunder we recovered. Give them their wives and children and tell them to be gone. But David said, no, my brothers, don't be selfish with what the Lord has given us. He has kept us safe and helped us defeat the band of the raiders that have attacked us. Who will listen when you talk like this? We share and share alike, those who go to battle and those who guard the equipment. And David makes this then a regulation. But I want you to see this. Restore all. Restore all. Listen, everybody, I believe this is what God wants to do in your life. And I believe that this is a season that he wants to do it for you. And so, you know, maybe you can relate to my story. Or maybe you can relate to David's story. And maybe you're realizing this morning just how difficult this past season's battles have been on you. You've been walking in this huge gap between your expectations and your experiences. Disappointments have been mounting in your life. And unresolved trauma is now seeping out of your pores. I just want to speak directly into that, everybody, because I believe God is wanting to break you out of the rut of defeat and hurt and propel you forward with true soul, your soul fully restored. We're going to talk more about this in our small groups this week, and these are some of the questions we're going to be going through in your small groups, and so I want to encourage you to jump in to a group, do this with somebody as we do this, but if you would, I want you to just close your eyes, if you would, please. Because I don't want you to think about anybody else right now. I I don't want you to think about what this might mean to somebody else. I just want you to think about you right here. Because as we've been talking here today, maybe there have been some things that have been pinging in your own heart and mind. Maybe you're being reminded of hurts and abuse and rejection, disappointments and trauma that have happened in your life. And maybe you've just been pushing those things down below the surface. But maybe you're beginning to see the evidence (laughs) that these things are, they really are still affecting you. I want you to know right here today, right now in this moment, that God wants to restore your soul. He wants to restore your soul. And you may feel like you've lost yourself in all of this. And you're trying to figure out, I just want to feel good. I just want to feel normal again. Listen, God doesn't want to just change your emotions. God wants to restore your soul. And so I just want to declare over you that that rut, that rut of the downward spiral of your emotions ends today. It ends today. And I just want to declare over you that God is propelling you forward in Jesus' name. And I want to just declare over you that this year will be a wide-eyed wonder season for your life. 
that this will be a season where you recover all. If you would, I want you to stand on your feet, if you would, please. Because the worship team is just going to lead us in response here. And I don't, I don't want you to try to do anything, to be honest. But would you just let the Lord just love on you here just a little bit? He knows right where you are. And he knows how to find you. He goes before you and he makes a way. And his goodness and his mercy, they follow you. They're right behind you. And so, would you just put your hands out in front of you? This is a declaration. As we start this new series, as as we talk about just kind of the prophetic thing that God wants to do in 2020, would you just open your hands? And all that means to you, would you just begin to let go of those different things that you've been holding on to? And would you just let now just the presence of God begin to saturate your soul right here? Come on, everybody. Let's do this together. Thanks for joining us today. If God is doing something in your life or you're looking for ways to get connected, you can learn about groups, teams, and more at onechapel.com slash welcome. You can subscribe to future messages from One Chapel on your favorite podcast player. And of course, you're always invited to services every Sunday morning at 930 and 1130. See you next time.